First of all, I just want to say thank you for the chance to come and do this. I guess there were a lot of really talented speakers that weren't available, and so <laughs> here I am. And uh, seriously, I, I want to say thank you so much to uh, John Dawson for asking me, and uh, thank you for the people that, including him, who prepared food and did so much, and uh, this, is a, this is a gracious place to walk into. Um, I, you don't, I don't usually tell people if I'm nervous or not, but I'll tell you that I am because uh, there's, I think I'm more nervous about this than preaching in the big church because there's a lot of people in this room who have been mentors to me. And there's a lot of people in this room that I owe every single bit of spiritual growth over the last 30 years, frankly. And so I, I want you to know I'm coming at this from the standpoint of realizing there's a lot of different audiences here. Uh, there's a group of men who I really have no business teaching, frankly. They need to teach me. And then there's some people who may not have ever been here before. And uh, to you, I want to say, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Um, this is the first room I ever came into in this church. And I met my wife in this room uh, 27 years ago. And uh, so this room means a lot to me. Uh, I was baptized in that room along with my wife. And uh, so this, this space right here means a lot to me. It may sound kind of silly, but it really does. So to, to have the privilege of coming here and talking to such a great group of men is an honor and a privilege, and I don't take it lightly. Um, uh, if you are here thinking that you are looking for the how to never slice the golf ball again and look fabulous doing it, that meeting is down the hall on D104. If you were looking for the one that is how to lose a spare tire while you eat more pizza, that one is in D102. Feel free to relocate now. You were lied to by your friends that brought you here. Uh, but seriously, I just want to say thank you. And um, I want to tell you what my greatest desire is so that if I, if I really blow this, you know where I was going. My greatest desire is to encourage you as brothers in Christ or those who might become brothers in Christ to see the beauty and sufficiency and graciousness and perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ above all creation for all time. That's it. That's the whole thing. So if I fall over in the middle of this or if we have a power hour, some crazy stuff happens, just know that's the punchline. He is all sufficient. He is all worthy for all time, for all peoples, period. Um, so before I start talking, let me pray briefly again. Great God in heaven, would you come in this room? Would you send your Holy Spirit in a mighty fashion? Lord, we are 100% dependent on you, your word, your Holy Spirit, your teaching, your guidance, your wisdom. God, would you help us to see who you are in the midst of everything that's about to be said and talked about? And God, would you please lift up your son, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the king, our king, who never sinned. Would you lift him up among us and would you draw us to him? Whether those, there are those in this room who know him or don't know him, I pray that they would very soon. God, would you do this for your glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So before any theology or stories, this is, this is the hardest topic I've ever tried to prepare for. So John Dawson said, hey, I just want you to talk about how you see God work into every day. I was like, all right, well, that's, that's quite broad. And uh, could I have a verse, please? And uh, no, this is not a Bible study. I said, okay, could I have a passage or could I have a person in scripture? Because that would be much more, that's be easier to handle. No, this is not a Bible study, Andy. This is you talking about how you see God working in your day-to-day -day life. So before theology or before verses, I'm going to give you a little biography. So I was born in 1968. I'm 53 years old. Uh, I was born to a truck driving dad and an elementary teacher mama. Uh, she was finishing college, um, and uh, my father died about 14 months ago. And uh, I'm going to get real, really real, real quick. And I hope that's okay in this room. Uh, since it's just us dudes in here, I hope that's acceptable. We don't have much time on this earth, man. Let's get after it. I never had a relationship with my dad that I was proud of. Never was close. Still don't. I saw him maybe once or twice in the last 15 months of his life because of COVID, because he was battling esophageal adenocarcinoma on chemotherapy, and I was a COVID doctor. So those two things don't go together very well. 
But it wasn't just that. It was a lot of relational baggage as well. And if you're here, and that's part of your story, I just want you to know that's okay. The Lord can work through that. And the Lord can still draw you to himself in the midst of that. I met my wife, Jen, in this room 27 years ago. We've been married 26 years now, going on 27 years. We have six living children. Uh, my oldest is sitting right here. My youngest is sitting right there. And um, I was invited to come to First Van by a man named Chubby Andrews, who ended up being a, a mentor and friend of mine. I met him through a Bible study. It's a long story. Um, but he invited me to come here. I had never heard expositional Bible preaching before. Frankly, I hadn't been in church very much before that either. Um, and um, he invited me to come in here and listen to a man named Jim Allman talking through a book called Romans that I'd never heard anybody taught before. And, um, and my, my, my sweet bride happened to be in the same room. I was purposely avoiding women because of multiple broken, failed relationships in the past. I wanted to go somewhere where I never had to deal with a female at least for a year or two until I got some Bible teaching in me. And so I came in here and I sat on the front row next to Berta Radford, who I think was 94 years old at the time. She took about 17 pages of notes per 30 minutes. And Dr. Allman, if you know him, you know he teaches a lot. And she would finish the lesson and she'd have a half a spiral notebook and I was sitting there and I'd have like two words written down and I thought, man, this, this, I need to be next to this woman. So this is an acceptable woman for me to be next to. That's fine. I don't think there's any issue here. 94, 21, we can work that, we can make this work. And man, I tell you, I learned almost as much about studying scripture from watching that lady listen to tea and just soak it in. It was amazing. I'll, I'll never forget to sit right here. My little wife was sitting on the very back row avoiding men because she was here to, for graduate school and she wanted to make sure she didn't meet a boy while she was away from North Carolina. And six children and 26 years later, here we are. I work in downtown Memphis. I'm a physician. I work for UT. I work at the Med. Um, yes, by choice. That's where the sick people are downtown. And that's where I get to have the privilege of rubbing shoulders with my residents and my medical students who are mostly Jordanian, Pakistani, Syrian, uh, or Arabs, a lot of Muslim, Hindus, Sikhs. Um, and um, it's an honor and a privilege to work among them in the part of our, our part of our city that has an enormous and incredible need for people to show up and take care of people. I'll give you one warning before I talk about what I'm going to talk about. Um, to the brothers of mine in the room, to those of you who are brothers in Christ and who know the Lord and are here because you're encouraged by being around brothers in Christ, uh, I just want to tell you this. Forgive me if I push a little hard in the next few minutes. I think at this point in our culture, we are at a dire need for men to stand up and seek the Lord with strength, power, and conviction. I think there is an atmosphere of fear that has to be confronted. Not with anger, not with spite, but with God-saturated men. And that's who I want to be. So if I push a little hard, you'll forgive me. Because I need to be pushed. Secondly, I want to tell you this. I don't have this figured out. This is not a, hey, I tell you what, you know what, I've figured out the deal. I've got my steps here. I've got my five-step plan to spiritual depth and growth. That's what I came tonight. And I'm just going to share my plan with you. It's going to be awesome. If you'll just follow steps one through three, you'll be 80% there. And then four and five, you know, you get the badge. And then you'll be, you'll be a rock star. That's not it at all. I do not have this figured out. But I really want to. After 23 years of raising children, yes, 23 years of raising children with a solid six or eight more years to go with little one here, depending on outcomes, my wife and I are exhausted. I mean, we're exhausted. We're tired, a little bit beat up. I would like to be the Jeremiah 17, 7, and 8 guy, right? So Jeremiah 17, 7, and 8, here's what it says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. He does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves remain green, and he's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's, that's it. That's where I want to be. That's where I want my sons to be where I want your sons to be. 
Unfortunately, I find myself in the next verse too much of the time, which is Jeremiah 17, 9, which says the heart is deceitful, desperately sick. Who can know it? Now, I would like to be the Peter in Acts 12, verse 6. Right? In Acts 12, verse 6, Peter is in jail. Right? And what's Peter doing? He's not fretting. He's not wringing his hands. He's not freaking out. You know what he's doing? He's sleeping. Why is he sleeping? You know why? Peter's already free. You can put him in chains. He's already free. You can put him in jail. He's already free. You can give him guards and sentries and walls. He's already free. That's the kind of translational faith that I want to have no matter what situation the Lord puts me into that kind of confidence. Unfortunately, I find myself in Romans 7 too much of the time. I find this war within me, Paul says, right? I find this law at work within me. The good that I ought to do, I find myself not doing that. But the evil that I know I ought not to do, that's what I find myself doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death, O wretched man that I am, right? So let's just get that straight on the front end. Not where we want to be. I'm not. And I please do not hear a thing I say as me coming and saying, I got it figured out. I got it, man. Just subscribe, chat, Insta flap it, data, sign up for whatever, and I'll give you my plan. That ain't it. I know where the plan is. Right there. John Dawson said, talk about how you see God working in everyday life. So we got students here. We got husbands and fathers here, or people who want to be your were. And we got people who are trying to make a living here. So I'm going to give you three snapshots of how I see the Lord working in everyday life. Okay? So bear with me if you're not in the first category. Spring 1988. Some of you weren't around in spring of 1988. Some of you were. Spring of 1988, I was at Rhodes College. Right? I just finished my first outstanding academic year at Rhodes College from my incredible diligence and academic performance. I... uh, Played some baseball and uh, messed around and dated some girls and had a real fun time. I went to Rhodes with a GPA almost five out of high school, full ride, room, board, everything, t-shirt, name tag, parking place. At the end of my first year, after incredible diligence and hard work, I'd worked my GPA down to a 1.1. And I got this nice call. I got this nice letter. It's a letter. I still remember it. I hope I still have this. It was a nice letter. It was very embossed, beautiful piece of stationery. I don't do stuff like this. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful letter to look at. Dear freshman Mr. Andy Pierce, we are regretting to inform you that you will be unable to receive your scholarship money for the next um, academic year because of your unfortunately unsavory academic performance. We encourage you to look for alternative places to matriculate. It was a fancy way of saying... Really screwed up, dude. Get out. So I thought, wow, I'm, this is a small hint that maybe I'm not a pre-med student. Maybe, golly, maybe it's not cut out for me. Maybe I need to be an engineer, right? Because that's so much easier. And so go to Memphis State, right? So I go to Memphis State and I start mechanical engineering. And, and through incredible diligence and hard work over the next 12 months, I managed to fail physics, calculus, and chemistry three semesters in a row. Awesome. And Memphis State sent me, it was Memphis State, it'll always be Memphis State University to me, MSU, I didn't want the name change either, but they sent me a letter too. I got, now I have two of these letters, it's awesome. I'm getting all these fancy letters on this embossed stuff from people in academic affairs, whatever that office does. And they said, we regret to inform you that we'll be unable to offer you a spot next year. Even though you're not scholarship, we don't want you to re- reapply for admission. <laughs> because of your excellent academic performance. See you, right? Anybody here ever feel like a complete and utter failure? Anybody ever blow it bad? I'm sure in a a room this size, there's probably one or two who have lusted or committed adultery or lied on your taxes or some other thing that society would say, gosh, man, that's, that's, I mean, I've screwed up some, but not like you have, dude, that's really bad. Kind of like Peter. 
Matthew chapter 26. You know, Peter, the disciple who is also the swordsman, right? Takes off Malchus's ear when they come for Jesus. Peter, he's the stud, man. He's got it. He's the man. He's the honcho. No fear. Until he gets in Caiaphas' outer court, and then he's scared of little girls. Until he has to walk with the Lord through suffering, and then he follows not closely, but what? At a distance. Matthew 26. Anybody ever feel like you really screwed up? What about like David? David, the greatest king in Israel's history, right? David walking with power, wisdom, walking closely with the Lord, the sweet singer of Israel, the psalmist of Israel. Until he finds himself walking on a ledge, staring at a young naked woman taking a bath in some house down the street. Another man's wife. I want you to know that the way I see the Lord working in day-to-day life is not simply when things are great. And it's not simply when things are just perfect. It's when everything's really screwed up. Because in my life, in the fall of 1988, God sent a man, and he's here, and I'm not going to say his name, but he knows who he is. Because every time I say his name, he gets a little uncomfortable. And that man committed to me. Like I wonder if the Lord hasn't been prompting some of you to commit to someone else or maybe to seek out someone for their commitment. That man gave me five years, six years, seven years of his life. If I ever missed a Thursday morning in those years, it was because I was busy, not him. He was always available. That was the kindness of God. That was the beauty and graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life at the time to give me that man. And he taught me four things. He taught me how to study scripture. He taught me how to pray. Not by praying, by leading me in prayer. He taught me to get tight with some brothers. I mean, real brothers. Not just a couple of farmers who show up and say, hey, how are things going? Oh, yeah, great. It rained today. Yeah, that's going to stink. No, I mean confessing transparent, hungry, eager brothers who want depth and want impact and want disciples and want to reproduce in the kingdom. Those kind of brothers. And the fourth thing he taught me is that God's not hindered by your failures, Andy, and he really doesn't need your success. He wants your heart. That season of my life taught me in the God to day to day moments that number one, God is the God of our journey. He is Lord and master of our journey. Wherever any of you are, and I'm looking at so many men and it's hard for me to bounce my eyes because I see men, I'm like, yeah, I heard him pray one time. It was amazing. I wish I could pray like that. I saw that guy lead somebody to Christ one time. I've heard that guy teach scripture before. That guy led me on a mission trip. That guy took my son and me overseas and, and drastically changed my life. It's hard for me to talk to a group like this, frankly, because there's so many people I have so much regard and respect for, but God's truth never changes. And if he's the God of our journey in the day and day in 1988, he's the God of our journey right now. Going back to Peter, you know, how does the Lord treat somebody that's a total and utter failure? If you're here tonight carrying that kind of baggage, I'll tell you how he treats him. He invited Peter, only Peter, to the beach in John 21. One-on-one. That's the graciousness and kindness of the Lord. That's the beauty of his character. Feel like a failure? Feel like you screwed up? Welcome to the club, brother. Lord's ready. Snippet number two. Fast forward to 2004, April. First, we talked about students. There's a few students over here. A baseball team. Me and a couple. I'm privileged to be an assistant coach with a couple of these guys. We got the whole baseball team over here if you wondered who they were. I had two questions for John Dawson when he asked me to speak. Number one, will it be taped? Because that will change a lot of what I might might have otherwise said. Because I'm not going to get in trouble. (laughs) Because I get in trouble sometimes. And the other thing is, what's the age group of the people being here? (laughs) And so, rounding out the lower age group, we got the team right here. April 2004, second snippet. First was spring of 88. Now we're in April of 2004. My wife and I are about to have child number four. So when John asked me, how do you see God working in the day-to-day, I thought, well, this is one of those seasons that stuck out in my life. April 2004, we're about to have child number four, which maybe is insanity in itself, but 
we were going ahead with it. Child number four would be really cool because we had a son and then two daughters. And so I was longing for a brother for my oldest son. And this was going to be a boy. It was going to be perfect. Two and two, and we're done, baby. This is going to be great. I might get to retire before I'm 900 years old at this point. My wife and I go. We had a routine. We'd go to the, I'd join her for prenatal visits whenever I could. It's in the husband book. Show up, do that, okay, check. Go into the prenatal visits, whatever. And we go, and we would leave Methodist Germantown, which is where our insurance covered at the time. And so we'd leave there. We'd always stop by McDonald's on uh, Germantown Road right there by Poplar, and we'd get two milkshakes. And we'd sit there, and we just said, hey, we're just going to carve this out. This is going to be our little Ebenezer spot for a second, and we're just going to pray for this old boy. Pray that he would be a beast. Pray that he would love the Lord. He would seek the Holy Spirit. That he would want to make disciples. I mean, those kind of prayers. I get vanilla, she get chocolate. We went to the hospital one day and we got a bad ultrasound. Really bad ultrasound. Scared us both. Doc sat down and had a talk with us. Doc's a dear friend and brother. Might be here tonight. He told us, don't expect this kid to live. It's going to be trouble. So my wife and I leave. What do you do? You go to McDonald's. Get you a milkshake. You sit in the car. And you ask the Lord, Lord, we want to trust you. We want to see you win. We want to see you bring this boy healthy to us. Can we trust you? I was pretty sure I had it. I was pretty sure because I was the spiritual leader of our household. I was pretty sure I knew exactly what to do. I was supposed to take my wife to, the, to Lazarus, right? Take her to John chapter 12 and show her how Lazarus died. And Jesus was actually glad that he wasn't there, right? You remember he, he tarried a little longer and he actually told his disciples, you know, I'm glad I wasn't there because this will actually bring more glory to God because they'll say that God's actually in charge and not just... He wasn't just sleepy and he wasn't just a little ill. It'll be better this way. So Jesus shows up. Martha runs to him. Mary runs to him. They both said the same thing, right? They both said, Lord, you know, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died, right? If, if. And so I knew what I was supposed to do here during milkshake session is I was supposed to say, Lord, uh, Jen, my wife, Jen, look, sweetheart, it's just like Lazarus. You know, God gave us this Lazarus. He's in the tomb right now. We're going to pray. The stone's going to roll away. It's going to be awesome. Lazarus is going to come out. Jesus is going to speak to our son's almost dead ears. He's going to come out of that womb and it's going to be celebration. Man, it's going to be awesome. Church is going to be there. Oh, it's going to be awesome, right? Then her water broke way too early. Two hours later, we're in a sterile operating room at 34 weeks. Five pounds, four ounces. I heard him cry one time. He goes straight on a ventilator. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, can I trust you in the midst of this? This is like Lazarus, right? This is the Lazarus moment. Like, I just need to sit here and wait for Lazarus. This is Lazarus. He goes on a ventilator, then he has a chest tube, then he has another chest tube, then he has another chest tube. So we got three chest tubes, 24 hours. We're on a ventilator, a little bitty, big enough to live, plenty big enough to live, but a little bitty. And the doc comes to us, he says, we have a decision to make. And I knew exactly what he meant. My residency was in internal medicine and pediatrics. I've taken care of newborns for years before that. I knew exactly what he was talking about. Your kid's not gonna make it, sir. I need to know how you want to handle this. Would you like to keep him alive for a couple days? Would you like to let him just kind of struggle on and we can give him some morphine and we can kind of keep him sort of sedated and you get a little bit of time with him? Or do you want to have less agony and let nature take its course more quickly? And see, up until that time, we had gotten our kids, I don't know if you remember this, but we had gotten our kids together with my wife in the bed at home. And we had decided if the Lord is going to bring us to a confrontation point of faith, if we're going to see him work in the day to day, then we're going to involve our kids there because we want them to know that worship happens not just because of promises. Worship happens because of who God is, because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it, whether the outcome is what we like or what we don't like, right? And so we're going to teach our kids, man, we're going to praise him. We're going to praise him without the result because that'll be even sweeter and we'll have more intimacy with him afterwards. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is like Lazarus. This is like Lazarus. 
This is going to be great. It didn't happen. What happened was he died. And he died because we didn't want him to suffer. That was Good Friday morning, 2004. My wife and I are sitting in the hospital with our now dead son. And I began to see why the Lord would have done that. Now we know what it feels like, just a tiny little bit to lose a son because he lost one on Good Friday also. Now we know just a little bit what it means to follow him for him, not for what he gives to us. Lord, can we trust you in the midst of this? When we left the hospital on that Sunday morning after two days of my wife recovering, after seeing elders from this church come and pray, pray over her, pray over me, after seeing pastors come, people weep at the bedside. At the funeral we had, I wish I could show you the snapshot of my mind. There was a line of 150-something people. I don't think two of them knew the Lord. And it began to hit me what the Lord was doing. You know what? 150 people that day heard the gospel from my pastor. And they saw two people sit there, not perfect Christians, because we were bawling the whole time. We didn't have it together. My makeup was really messed up that day. Mascara was shot. Lipstick was done. But they saw two people trusting God. Not because of what he did, but because of who he was. And they heard the gospel. 150 of them. That was 17, 18 years ago. I still know a lot of those people, man. And if you don't think that hasn't become a touchstone of conversation over the last 18 years, and if you don't think questions haven't come out of that, you know, how did you sit there and do that? Well, we didn't have it all figured out. We were just trying to do the best we could. And what the Lord was trying to teach us in that little snapshot of the day-to-day life was we sat at the funeral because we have hope in him. Death is not the end, Andy. That's what the Lord was trying to teach me. Andy, can you witness to your children in the midst of this? Andy, are you such a man or your wife such a woman that y'all can stand up to the children I've already given you? And can you bless my name in front of them in the midst of this sort of hurt? You know, amazing things came out of that season. Our intimacy with our children grew. Our intimacy with our church grew. Our intimacy with each other grew. And I just have to tell you, when I look back, I cannot say that I'm glad it worked out the way it did, because that would be false. I'd like to have my son. Right? He'd be 18. Really cool. But he doesn't suffer. He's not beat up with lust. He's not like 40% of the boys that were 18 in this country and addicted to pornography. And he's not lost and wandering around in the world that's mean, hairy, angry, and cruel. He is with the Lord. Like that. First thing we learned in the first snippet is God is the God of our journey. He's the Lord of our journey. The second thing we learned in the second snippet is you can trust him. You can trust him. And not trust him just like Lazarus, but trust him like Job. Job in chapter 1 verse 20, remember he loses all of his children. They get wiped out in some freak storm. And here's what Job says. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's where I want to be as a disciple all the time. It's trusting God like David did after Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 12, you remember the passage, don't you? The child dies. 
And when the child dies, where do they find David? They find David who's fasting and praying and on the floor. And when he learns the child is dead, what does he do? He doesn't get up and go to grief counseling and call people and have a lavender moment and start some incense and Snapchat it. And I'm sorry if that's an offensive way to address this, but he does exactly what a godly man needs to do. He gets up, washes his face, and he goes to the temple and he worships. Where do we get, where do we get that kind of men? I don't know any other place to get those sorts of men than the men who are intimate with Jesus, who trust him and know him and walk with him and long to be with him because our eyes are not on circumstances, they're on our Savior. Joseph died in my wife's arms, straight into the arms of Jesus. And that's a good thing. And on his tombstone, my wife and I thought a lot about this. We thought about what do, what do we want? We want this, to be, want this to be a mess. The Lord had freed us up a little bit. Still a lot of hurts, a lot of pain, still a lot of sorrow. Many people in this room have lost children in immeasurably harder circumstances. And I understand that. This is simply where the Lord had us. So if you walk out at the first van, Jim, and you look to the right, he's buried right up there on the hill. I can see his tombstone sometimes when I walk out, depending on where the wind's blowing. Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. We were faint. And to him who has mighty increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men will fall exhausted. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. The Lord's good. So not only is he the God of our journey, not only is he the Lord of my journey, your journey, our journey, my children's journey, every moment he is the Lord of that journey. Not only can we trust him in the moment, but thirdly, I want you to think about February of 2020. In February of 2020, we had a new virus. Probably heard of it. Coronavirus. The Rona. I pronounced more people dead in 2020 while running the COVID unit at Methodist Hospital downtown than I had, produ- than I had pronounced dead in the previous 19 years of practice combined. That was a rough year. But the Lord had a purpose in that year for me, where I was. And if you ask me, where do I see God working in the day-to-day of my life? Sounds like it's been a really rough life. It's actually been a really good life. It's been a few dingers. February 2020, there was a new virus and there was this atmosphere of fear in the hospital. We initially got reports that the virus was going to have a mortality somewhere upwards of 90%. That was, of course, fantastic, but it was limited data and limited source sampling. I didn't know if this was going to be SARS or MERS or if this was going to be something much worse, if it was going to be even more lethal, if this was going to even be treatable. We had people coming in our hospital. Again, I work in the downtown area. We have an enormous amount of people. 67% of our population in inner city Memphis has no access to a primary care doctor. It, it, it's mind-boggling to me as an inner-city physician to have someone call me and say, hey, I've got this going on. Um, how can I get in and see somebody tomorrow? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. Do you realize that 70% of inner-city Memphis can't get in for three months? That's reality. Two weeks ago, I had a young lady come in the med. She was shot once in this femur, shot once in this femur, and, and her boyfriend did a number on the baby, which was right here, shot him also. That never even makes the news. Okay, that's just routine. That goes on 13 miles from here, all the time. Some are aware, some are not aware, but we ought to be aware. When this virus hit our hospital, patients started dropping like flies. And there were certain risk profile patients that we knew with certain comorbidities, which half of you could probably spit off the top of your head because now everybody's pretty well versed in what the high risk profile is for this patient population to die. And the hospital started asking, hey, we've got to have a ward at the hospital. We've got to have somebody to go in there and staff this thing, right? Um, I was sitting in the staff meeting and nobody raised their hand. 
And I said, uh, uh-oh. Um, and I talked to my wife. And the Lord began to whisper, not because of my outstanding discipleship or not because of my great bravery and courage, but because I'm a Christian doc, man. This is something we should respond to. I came home and told my wife and I said, uh, let's read verses. Let's go to the New Testament and let's go through verses and see how did the church in the New Testament, how did they respond to crisis that might have cost them their life, right? Because if me and my buddies are going to go in here and take care of patients in this setting with a potential 90% mortality and an unknown virus, this might be the last time I see my kids, okay? Might be the last time I see my wife. Have you ever read Acts in one sitting? If you haven't, brothers... And if you're here as not a believer in Christ, but you just came either because you were lied to or because you just wanted some good food or you just wanted to come see what it was all about, forgive me for just a second. But brothers, have you ever read Acts in one sitting? It takes about two and a half hours. Paul's farewell message to the believers as he is about to get on a ship and go across the ocean will blow you away. He essentially says, uh, it's probably the last time I'm going to see you. Uh, I'm okay with that. Uh, I've got a job to do and I've got churches to feed. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested. Like for the third time. Like it happens a lot, right? They get arrested. They get told. They get beaten. They get warned. Don't go out and preach in Jesus' name. And what do they do? Like they go out and preach in Jesus' name, right? It's It's what they do. It's what apostles do. If you look at their prayers and the church's prayers around them, and man, I hope this doesn't hit people the wrong way. There's not a lot of prayers for safety. And there's not a lot of prayers for like safe travels and stuff. There's a ton of prayer for fruit. God, will you produce fruit from this missionary? God, will you humble us and help us to support this person? Will you bring new converts, new believers? If there's wickedness there, deal with it. But will you produce spiritual fruit? That's the kind of prayers in the New Testament, right? All through there. It's not Andy's prayers, it's New Testament prayers. My wife and I looked at that, took a hard look at that over about three days. A lot of crying and a lot of, a lot of praying and a lot of crying. And I said, Jen, I think this is what a Christian doc is supposed to do. I think we're supposed to cherish heaven and cherish eternity, and cherish the Lord's presence more than we cherish home. Are you okay with that? Are you okay if this is the last time we see each other, babe? And are you okay if this is the last time I see my kids? A lot of crying, a lot of praying. And to my wife's credit, uh, she said, yeah, sign up, do it. First day on the wards in the COVID unit, I met a 67, excuse me, I met a 93-year-old elderly white lady. I knew the minute I walked in the door, she wasn't going to make it. She looked terrible. She was already riding the wrong train. She could barely hear me. I tried the old trick of putting my stethoscope in her ears, turning it around and speaking into the, it didn't work. Screaming in her ear, I finally got a telephone number out of her. I thought maybe she had 24 hours to live. I get her husband on the phone, find out they've been married for 67 years. Ambulance picked her up. He doesn't drive. He said, sir, how can I see my wife one more time? Visitation policy at the time was absolutely shut down. I would have had to put him in a paper bag and sneak him in a backpack to get him in the hospital. Or put him in scrubs and dress him up as a doctor. Not saying those things didn't happen. But not in February of 2020. She said, how can I see my husband again? We've been married for 67 years. I can see that little gleam in her eye. I wanted to see each other. Couldn't do it. I'm walking in there and I'm thinking, Lord, why did you bring me in this situation? Like, hey, you know, am I going to have to give a talk one day to a bunch of people at First of Van who I really respect and I'm going to have to talk about, wow, this is really cool. It's with the Lord, but is that why? Why did you bring me in this situation so that I could see these sweet people die from a disease they know nothing about? And frankly, I don't know that much about either. I met another lady, a 91-year-old African-American female, a very sweet lady. 
Same situation, been married to her husband for 65 years. Faithful, godly, praying, encouraged. She encouraged me. I mean, I walked in the room and asked how she's doing. She said, honey, how are you doing? I lost it. My little goggles fogged up. I got little tear lines going on my glasses. We talk about scripture. We talk about heaven. We talk about the, the greatness of God. And she knows she's dying. The next day I walk in the hospital and she looked terrible and I call her family on the phone and all I can do is get, like the hospital's plan wasn't great at this point, okay? I apologize if there's any Methodist Healthcare Administration here in the room or if there's anybody listens to this talk later on, I just apologize. The plan wasn't great, okay? It was kind of a fail, to be honest with you. So I end up with my cell phone. This is not my cell phone, but I end up with my cell phone in front of this lady who's been married to this man now for 65 years. The last time she'll ever see him is on my stupid little cell phone with a cracked screen and all her kids sitting around behind her. And we're all praying and we're all crying and we're just rejoicing in the Lord. I walk away from that and I'm like, Lord, I don't know how many more of these I can take. I mean, why did you bring me in here? Like, I get that it's what we should be doing, but this really stinks. I was about to discharge a lady. She had a tracheostomy. She suffered a complication of COVID, which is a very well-known coagulation problem. I'm staring at my good buddy who's a critical care doctor. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. And I called her family and said, hey, she's ready to go home. And uh, I said, hey, come on and get her. We'll, we'll roll down the ambulance to her. There's a particular coagulation problem that can happen with severe infection and uh, has a big fancy name. And... Uh, and I went back up to see the patient, and put her in a wheelchair, and she started bleeding. Started bleeding around her trach, started bleeding from her ears, started bleeding from her nose. And I said, oh God, no, please. I'm trying to get this lady home. Sweetest lady you've ever met. Had a spinal tumor several years ago, has been a paraplegic for many years. Just want to get her home so she can see her kids. Got two little girls, so I'm on the phone every day. Eight hours later, she bleeds out. Her daughter calls me about six hours later. She says, I thought you told me she was coming home. And I said, I did. I did. What do you say? I mean, it's not time for me to whip out the four spiritual laws at that point and go, hey, man, but you know what? God brought me in here and I'm going to give this talk one day. Let me just break it down for you. All you can do is just sit and suffer with them. And so I went at some point in the midst of all this fun, I went to the chapel at the church and I took all my gear off and I got down and I said, Lord, I need, I need to, uh, I need to see you. I need to know you're here. I need to know what your purpose is in this. I need to know why I'm here. And the Lord gave me two passages of scripture, Mark chapter four and Luke chapter five, both places where the disciples are freaked out by being on a lake in the midst of a storm and both places where the Lord says, shh, be still. I got this. And I don't know if it was the next patient encounter, but it was very soon after that. I walked into a room to see a man, an African-American man who I knew from previous admissions who was a pastor in the inner city, a godly man. And I sat down at his bedside and I said, sir, you're getting sicker. And he looked at me and he said, why did God put me in here? I'm a pastor of a church. I'm not a bad guy. I'm not out doing crazy stuff. I'm not out doing this and that. And I don't understand why I'm here. And it clicked. It clicked by the kindness and the gift of the Holy Spirit coming into that room. I was trying to give this man courage. And I said, sir, do you understand the testimony you're going to have when you leave this room? You've preached your whole life to a congregation that wants to hear that if you have this type of faith, you will get this sort of return from the Lord. And maybe if you use this word, you will get this. He's part of a denomination that I do not consider orthodox. And he knows it. We've been friends for a long time but we have, a, we have an understanding. I pray for him. He prays for me. We get along. We make it work. We'll sort it out when we get to heaven, right? Yeah. If one of us isn't there, we know who was right, right? <laughs> I said, sir, you have preached to a congregation your whole life from a standpoint of, I think I have courage in this situation. And now the Lord has given you a situation and you will be able to preach from the standpoint of, I was there and God saved me 
And I said, do you understand that God is feeding your church by having you here? And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, like the idiot that I am, I went, Andy, you needed to hear that too, buddy. You needed to hear it too. Completely unaware of the fact that I was telling him exactly what the Lord wanted me to hear. Andy, I've got you here for a reason. It's because I'm trying to prove to you that I've got this. Not only am I the God of your journey, not only can you trust me, but I never leave my people. I never leave my people. I don't leave my pastors. I don't leave my doctors. I don't leave my nurses. I don't leave my patients. So where does that leave us? It leaves us six minutes over time is where it leaves us. I'm not going to ask because you're all too nice to say no, so I'm just going to finish this real quickly. Where does this leave us? And I, I hope what you have heard is three different situations where I was utterly unaware of how to see the Lord working in the midst of a situation, and yet the Lord acted in a glorious and compassionate and loving way. He is sufficient. He's the God of our journey. We can trust him, and he never leaves his people. Where does this leave us? I got five things I was going to say, but that's too much time. That's like another hour. We'll just finish with two. I think this leaves us understanding. And for those of you who are in this room who may not walk with the Lord, but may wonder what discipleship looks like with the Lord, I just want you to know that God uses ordinary, routine, failing men. Have you looked at the disciples lately? I mean, we've talked about Peter. We beat up on him a little bit. How about James? James is that disciple that, oh, he's like the cool. James is cool. Always in the background. Never real vocal. Powerful, but not real up front, right? James, right? He's really got it. Well, you know, except for Luke chapter nine, when they're looking for a place to have a feast and the Samaritans turn him away. And what's James' great missionary plan? Lord, should we call down fire on them? That's a great missionary strategy, James. (laughs) It's going to go over well at the missions banquet. Call down fire on the non-believers. Right on. How about the only disciple that Jesus ever turned to and called Satan? The Lord used him powerfully. More powerfully than he can ever imagine. What about Thomas? No, no, no. You know, see, until I see and put my fingers in the holes and touch the thing, I'm not believing. Thomas gets a short sell, but Thomas is actually a dynamic disciple. The Lord uses common men, failing men. He's not looking for studs. He's looking for men whose hearts are set on him. I think it leaves us here. I think it leads us with a need for intimacy with the Lord in the day-to-day life we live. Some of you guys probably have jobs that are from any spectrum. There's probably neuroscientists in the room. There's guys who work on, I don't know. Every job is probably represented in here. We all have one need. We need to walk closely and intimately with him every single day. You remember Genesis 39, 19, right? You remember how Joseph was in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's sexy wife comes to him every day and wants him to lie with her? Remember what Joseph's response was to her? How could I do this thing and sin against God, right? That's an amazing response. Somehow Joseph saw his interaction with Potiphar, not primarily as an interaction between Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and Potiphar, but between himself and the Lord. Joseph was living before an audience of one. You remember Psalm 51.4, probably after David and Bathsheba, the horrifying account in 2 Samuel. Later, Psalm 51 is written. And what does David say? We even get a hint in the heading of it that it was written after that occurrence. What does David say? Against you and you only I have sinned, God. How do I see the Lord in the day-to-day? I try to live before an audience of one. Stay before that one who knows us and who loves us. Joseph did it. David did it. And finally, Paul in in, uh, Acts 14 Paul's an insane man, okay? Let's just get it out there. In Acts 14, Paul is stoned while he is preaching in a city called Lystra. He is dragged out of the city because they think he's dead. 
Our hospital struggles with different things. Every hospital struggles. But most hospitals are good at figuring out who's dead and who's not dead. So this is pretty a basic skill. So I'm pretty sure when they drug him out of Lystra, they were pretty close to the money on this one. He gets up. What's a rational man do? Like run? Leave? No, he goes back to Lystra. Not only does he go back to Lystra, but he goes back to Lystra and he does some more preaching. And then he leaves and he goes right down the road to Iconium. And then he decides again and he's leaving there. You know what? I better go back to Lystra one more time. Paul's mind is 100% on where does the Lord want me and what does he want me doing? That's how he sees God working in the day to day. He stays before an audience of one. And our blessed Lord in Matthew 26, facing the final struggle of the cross. Three times in Matthew chapter 26, he goes before his audience of one, his father. Three requests for this cup to pass from me, and yet three no's. Nonetheless, the Lord walks before him. I'll finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. No one knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is present that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army. This dates this passage, obviously, by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. And a man who gives in to temptation after only five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. There's a silly idea that bad, excuse me, this is why that's a silly idea. This is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They live the sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He was the only complete realist. He was the only complete man. He was no stranger to struggle. Eternity was always on his mind. And he was radically oriented to audience of one person. God is the God of our journey. We can trust him. And he never leaves his people. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Great God in heaven, I pray that you would please send the Holy Spirit in this room again, that you would help us to remember the things that are from you, from your word, from your holy scripture. And you would help us to forget all the stuff that's just extra junk. And God, you would help us to latch on to your truth that we would want to be with you, that we want intimacy with you, that we would remember who you are and what you've done in our life. Thank you for treating us like sons. Thank you for being good to us. Thank you for sending us teachers and pastors and prophets in the Old Testament and new in the New Testament. And thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ the righteous, to save us and to give us hope. Hope even in the midst of death of a son. Hope in the midst of failing in life. Hope in the midst of not knowing what to do when we're called to act, Lord. In every situation, you are sufficient and we are weak. But your power is made perfect in weakness because your grace is sufficient for us. So Lord, we thank you. We honor you. We praise you. We ask you to go with us. And please bless all these men, all these brothers in the name of Jesus, Lord. Help us to walk with you and have courage, godly courage. In Jesus' name, amen.